A Sunday school teacher asked each member of her class to write one sentence in response to the statement, what Easter means to me. One of her students wrote, egg salad sandwiches for the next two weeks. <laughs> and those of you who are familiar with the tradition of boiling and painting eggs at Easter understand that joke. And that's what we get when we filter the Bible's great doctrines through the lens of the self and we ask people to tell us what they mean to them. Perhaps the task should simply have been write one sentence on what Easter means. How would you complete that assignment? What does Easter mean? Easter is the holiday, Easter is the holy day, when we celebrate especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the most recent 2020 State of Theology study, LifeWay Research found that 66% of Americans surveyed believe the biblical accounts of the physical resurrection of Jesus are completely accurate. One in five, 20%, do not believe that the accounts are true. And 14% of those surveyed say they weren't sure. So 66% surveyed believe in the scriptural portrayal of the resurrection of Jesus. 34% either do not believe or aren't sure. What about you? Where do you stand today with the resurrection? Are you skeptical? on this Easter day about the idea of someone being raised from the dead? Do you believe maybe possibly it happened to Jesus, but that his was an isolated experience and it doesn't have any bearing on your life or what happens to anyone else after death? If that's your thinking on the matter, then you're in good company with a group of the early Corinthian church who believed or were coming to believe something similar they struggled to know, and possibly some of them didn't even want to know, the full implications of Jesus' resurrection and how it relates to them. Our scripture today from 1 Corinthians 15 was written, and wasn't I happy going through our New Testament together reading plan to, to see 1 Corinthians 15 strike an Easter week. I was like, phew! You couldn't have given me a better text. There is no better treatise of the issue of the resurrection than 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul wrote this to help those people know about Jesus' resurrection and its implications, how it related to them. Uh, he wants his readers and his hearers to understand the resurrection. And prayerfully, by the time we're done today, we'll have a better understanding about the resurrection and what it means as well. Father, we come to that point where we place ourselves under your word to listen and hear for your voice, and we pray that's exactly what we would receive, uh, and that we would receive its truth implanted. We pray that you would, this, in this time, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are open to how you want to speak to us and to the truth that you have recorded in your scriptures. Bless us, Lord, as we plumb the depths of your great truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the resurrection of Jesus, what does it mean? Why does it matter? 
As we begin to read in 1 Corinthians 15, it quickly becomes obvious that the resurrection is an important part of the gospel. The resurrection is an important part of the gospel. Now, the word gospel, we went over this just last week, means good news, right? It is a good message. And in this application, it is the good announcement of what God has done through his son Jesus to reconcile sinners to himself. So Paul begins this chapter by saying, let me remind you of the gospel. Let me remind you that I have shared with you and that you have to this point received a truth of utmost importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and risen. Not just crucified and buried. The gospel message does not end in a grave. Not for Jesus and not for anyone who believes in him. In fact, any presentation of the gospel without the resurrection is really no gospel at all. It is not good news. The resurrection is a key part of the gospel message. But you might argue, and some in the Corinthian church probably did, and people today definitely still do, all this talk about life after death, all this talk about bodies coming out of the ground and being changed, it's so fantastical, it's so hard to conceive of something like that that's so far out of our realm of daily experience and what we perceive to be reality. Maybe if we could just tame this message a little bit, just, just if we could just cherry pick the pieces of, of the Christian message that, that makes sense to us. And we could say something like, yes, Jesus was a good teacher. And, and, and yes, Jesus was a moral man, and certainly he was a historical figure, and he said some really good things. We could all agree on that. We don't have to, that's not a big stretch. Maybe we could do that and just leave it there. But listen, we can't. The resurrection is part of the evangel, the gospel. And the gospel, the message and the truth about what God has done to save his people is non-negotiable. It is not customizable. Now, I know that you and I are growing up in, in, and living in an age where increasingly we can do things the way that we want them done. We can have so many things adapted to our personal preferences as consumers and we are we are being we are consumers we are being catered to if you want this you can have it this way if you want that you can have it that way and i'm here to say that we can't be treating the christian message like burger king and pull up and order it the way that we want it we take it the way it comes and the gospel comes with resurrection now, many years ago, I like to say it was in a previous life, it was my duty uh, in the role that I held at the time to accompany our company's 
chief executive officer for a few days of business meetings in Bar Harbor. Folks always wanted to come to Bar Harbor in the summer and have the business meetings. And what that meant was I would have to not only attend the meetings, but uh, pick him up at the airport, take him out to dinner, those sorts of things. If you've ever had to do that, you maybe you enjoyed it, but I'm an introvert by nature, and that's about as bad as it gets. This guy was a nice enough fellow, no question about that, but to be very honest with you, he embarrassed me. He embarrassed me a few times when we were out in public, and what embarrassed me was his sense of entitlement. As we sat in a nice restaurant in Bar Harbor, and he ordered his meal, and the waitress told us what the vegetables of the evening were, he didn't like those vegetables. And he was on um, a special diet, and so he wanted to have certain things. And so the waitress, Good, good main girl, we are have something like carrots and cauliflower. Well, do you have anything green, he asked. <laughs> the vegetable is carrots and cauliflower. Yes, do you have anything green? <laughs> the vegetables, carrots, and cauliflower. Could you ask the chef? to cook me something green. Wow. Well, on the way out of town, we stopped at a place on Route 3. The CEO wanted a lobster roll. We pulled in and stood in line and got to the counter and he ordered two lobster rolls. But see, he was on a special diet. So he said, could I have them without the roll, please? I knew this woman behind the counter, and I thought, this is not going to go well. And she said, that's how they come. And he said, yeah, but can I have them without the roll, please? And she said, that's how they come. And I'm thinking, please don't ask that again. Something's coming over the counter without a roll, I think. He said, could I have a bowl of, of clam chowder, please? Guy really wants to get a main experience. She said, sure, you can have a bowl of clam chowder. He said, oh, um, could I have that without the potatoes, please? She said, that's how it comes. Lobsters without the roll, clam chowder without the potatoes. A lobster roll without a roll is not a lobster roll, and clam chowder without the potatoes is not clam chowder. That's clam soup, and that doesn't sound good at all. <laughs> the gospel without the resurrection is not the gospel. That's how it comes, and it can't be changed. The idea of resurrection is so fundamental to the gospel, Paul says, that without it, if you look at verses 16 and 19, without it, Jesus is in the grave. Paul's preaching and all the apostles' preaching to this point then has been a lie. Anyone who has believed in the gospel has done so in vain if there's no resurrection. God has been totally misrepresented. Faith in Jesus is 
futile, a, a word that means empty, profitless, without profit. Sin still reigns, and everyone is under its curse. Those who have died believing are hopelessly dead and gone and in hell. Anyone whose hope in Jesus is restricted to this earthly life is pathetically misguided, is foolish, and to be pitied. In other words, as if it weren't plain enough, Christianity without a resurrection is ridiculous. Christianity without a resurrection is senseless. Christianity without a resurrection is, is useless. Still, if you're skeptical of the reality of the resurrection, maybe you'll be comforted to know that Jesus' closest friends were as well. As many times as he had told them that he would be killed, that he would suffer, that he would die, and then he would rise from the dead, they were still skeptical of the testimony when he had risen. In the last chapter of Mark's Gospel, verses 9 to 11, Now when he rose early in the, on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, do you know what the scripture says? They would not believe it. Nobody comes back from the dead, much less someone who'd gone through what Jesus had gone through, brutally executed by professional executioners. Nobody comes back from the dead. So what had changed? He appeared to them. They saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. And then they turned from a dejected, scared group of followers without a leader to an empowered, bold, and fearless group who had set about to change the world with the message of Jesus. He appeared to them, and they believed, which kind of makes sense to us, right? Seeing is believing, according to some. But not all of them believed, for the disciple Thomas was not present when Jesus showed himself to the others, and he, like them before, rejected what he was told, and he said this. It's captured in John's Gospel, John chapter 20. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side... Thomas says, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Amen. The Apostle, too, could speak definitively about the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because the risen Christ appeared to him as well on the road to Damascus. He saw, he spoke with, he was converted from persecuting the Christian church by the resurrected Jesus. So Paul bears witness not only to what he has heard, but of what he knows. And he says to those who were in the Corinthian church denying the resurrection, by then we get to verse 20, but in fact. Right? If Jesus hasn't been, been raised, all this stuff 
is, is true, your faith is in vain, you're still in your sins, the people who perished are still perished, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. So in this declaration, Paul not only affirms the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, but he sets forth its implications for us, for Christ's followers through the ages. Jesus is raised, he says, the first fruits, not a term that we use with any frequency, but the ESV study Bible note on this term reads, the term first fruits refers to a first sample of an agricultural crop that indicates the nature and quality of the rest of the crop. Therefore, Christ's resurrection body gives a foretaste of what those of believers will be like. So Jesus is the first to be raised among many. Those who believe in him will be raised too. Because he has overcome death, we who are in him have overcome death as well. And that is why he can say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, it would be profitable for us to explore the remainder of 1 Corinthians 15 to get to that place where we take this passage in John 11, this claim of Jesus, and understand what he's talking about when death is no longer going to have a sting or any sort of victory because that day is coming and Jesus' resurrection is proof of it, beloved. That's what the resurrection is proof of. He began what will one day be fulfilled. I, we don't have time, obviously, to go through all of 1 Corinthians 15, but I would commend it to you for further reading, wonderful Easter uh, reading. Read the entire chapter. Let me just attempt, as we wrap this up, to synthesize, as best I can, quickly, the Bible's teaching on this doctrine of, of resurrection. And then we'll close with a little bit of application. Mankind was created by God, and in the beginning was in fellowship with God, but then... Man disobeyed God, and sin entered creation, bringing its dual consequences of death and broken fellowship with God. When the time was right, God sent his son Jesus into the world to do for humanity what we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus lived perfectly. Jesus lived sinlessly. He never deserved sin's consequence of death. So when he chose to die on the cross, he did so in the place of sinful man. The sacrifice for humanity's sin. The atonement for our rebellion against God. Jesus was killed. Jesus was buried. And after three days, God raised him from the dead. And his resurrection is the proof that his substitutionary death did indeed satisfy the requirements of a holy God and paid the penalty for sin. His resurrection is the promise that all who place their faith in Jesus, who believe what he did on the cross on their behalf, will likewise rise from the dead. His resurrection guarantees that in the final day, the enemy of death will be thoroughly and soundly defeated. Since Christ has been raised, those who believe in him will likewise be raised to eternal life, clothed with immortality, new spiritual bodies, in which we will live forever in the presence of God. Therefore, Paul says, as he wraps up the chapter and concludes his argument, since all this is a fact, my beloved brothers, and here is the application, and here's the gist of the application, 
embracing the reality of the life to come which God has secured for us in Christ through his life, death, and resurrection allows you and I to live fully for him in this life. The truth of the gospel, the truth of the resurrection settles us. It emboldens us. It steals us so that we can, we can handle anything this life throws at us. We can handle it because we do know the best is yet to come. And therefore we can, as Paul exhorts in these final uh, pieces of chapter 15, we can be steadfast. The word means settled or sedentary. In view of the truth of your future in Christ, be strong, Paul says. Be, be confident. Face your days with faith, not being easily shaken by trials, not being easily waylaid by temptation or scared by what anyone can do to you. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Be fixed. Be firm. Paul would say that often, wouldn't he? Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. Hold your ground. Stand for truth. Be committed to the Christian faith. Be unshaken in your faith and the gospel message. Unwavering in your commitment to God. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Not haphazardly engaged in service to God. Not just once in a while lifting a finger for God Almighty. And certainly not spending your years in work for yourself. You're not really going to build a kingdom for yourself that you cannot keep, are you? Liz and I were watching one of those renovation shows last night. Those can be dangerous for a homeowner. But there was an excellent, excellent show. There's something about a chateau that somebody has, has taken over in France. It's like a castle. It's beautiful. It's in miserable shape, but it's huge and it's gorgeous. And oh my heavens, she, the, the lady opened the door to this grand staircase. And I said to Liz, wouldn't that be fun to, to have that and to have all the money that it would take to fix that and to spend your time renovating this old relic piece of history and, and bringing it back to life. Wouldn't that be fun? And it wasn't two seconds later and I said, and how stupid would that be to spend your life doing something like that? <laughs> because would it be fun? It's appealing. It's like, yes, or I want to make this great thing. For what? To leave in a place where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. To have something you cannot take with you. This is why Paul's saying always be abounding in the work of the Lord. That is the work that matters. Abounding as in abundant, as in really it's overflowing out of you. Earlier in this chapter, Paul admonished the Corinthians in verse 34. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Some have no knowledge of God, so we are to be alert and we are to be awake and we are to stay on point with the gospel message, sharing it with our lives, sharing it with our words to those who have yet to hear it and those, those who would even draw us away from it. We've got to stand firm and, and pull them to, to, to the gospel side, not be pulled ourselves the other way. Paul says, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, that nothing is wasted in this world that is done for God. Amen. Nothing is wasted in this world that is done for God. 
Because there is a resurrection, you can know that your work for the Lord in this life is going to be rewarded in the next. God will render to each according to his deeds. So, what does Easter mean? Well, more than egg salad sandwiches for the next two weeks, right? And more than bunnies and more than egg hunts and more than candy and more than ham dinner and all the stuff that we enjoy about Easter. Easter means that the work of Jesus on our behalf opened the possibility of eternal life for all who will believe. Easter means Jesus is not in the grave because he rose from the dead. The gospel from Paul to whoever is preaching it today is true. Easter means that whoever believes in the gospel will be eternally saved. Easter means that faith in Christ is well placed. Easter means that sin has been defeated. Easter means that those who die in Christ will be raised. Easter means those who place their hope in Christ can spend themselves in this life for him, knowing that he spent himself and his life for them, that they might inherit the eternal life, which is to come. Lord, you have overcome death. And you offer us eternal life. And we pray that the truth of your resurrection would truly be our confidence and our hope. We give you praise this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you guys. Have a great day.